look at today, and um, I was just thinking a little bit as I was pondering the schedule this morning. I mean, think about how sublime the timing is here. For one thing, if we had had the baptism last week, it would have been a, a slightly colder experience for the people going into the water, I'm thinking. So that was pretty good timing. Uh, way to go, Pastor Nate, scheduling out that. And uh, then there's something really neat, really beautiful, I think, about the framework for, you know, we, we celebrate baptism last week, and we have this kind of reminder of a visual picture of, of all of the concepts that we talked about, union with Christ and washing through his blood and, and the connection to his death and his resurrection. So we follow through that picture, that visual uh, framework last week, and then this week, now we're going to do it with the other picture that God has given us, and that is the picture now of the Lord's Supper. So I think uh, we should be good now. Maybe, yeah, we can just set it, try setting it down, and I'll try to see if I can take over. Yeah, perfect. No, I think we're good. Leave it for a little while, and uh, maybe it'll connect. If it doesn't, we'll be okay. Thank you. Um, so, I mean, just to think of the visual pictures here on the two sides, you know, last week, one visual picture that Christ gave us in baptism. This week, a second visual picture that he gave us in the Lord's Supper. And the beauty of that, it's awesome. There's another piece of this, I just, it is a little bit personal, but um, for my two kids, this will be their first Lord's Supper. So they were baptized last week, and now this is the first time they celebrate this, and probably for others in the room as well. This is, for, for many of you, I would think, some of you that were just baptized, this may be your first Lord's Supper. Well, I, I would love then for you to be able to enjoy this fully. I would love for you to have a rich sense of what this means. And I'll start out with an introduction or a compare, I guess, illustration kind of concept. There's an interview uh, with Elon Musk. It was done about a year ago. Uh, it's like one of the worst videos on the internet, so don't bother. Um, and um, so it's, it's him with a, a kind of a, an ostensibly Christian organization. It's actually a really, it, the, the way the conversation went is really pretty bad. Uh, Elon Musk, you know, he's the, the Tesla guy now, Twitter guy, uh, SpaceX guy, richest man on the planet currently by some measures. Um, and here are his comments. They're asking him about salvation and that kind of thing. He just says, I believe in the God of Spinoza. Uh, if Jesus, but hey, he says, if Jesus is saving people, I wouldn't stand in his way. I'd be like, sure, I'll be saved, yeah. So that's kind of the, where we're starting out <laughs> on the level of theological understanding. And they asked uh, something about baptism after that. And Mr. Musk says, oh, well, I was already baptized. He was Anglican. So I was already baptized as a child when I was a baby. He said, they dunked me in the water. And he said, I even had the like whatever body. I'm just reading. I mean, this is transcript, word for word. So he, I even had the like whatever body and blood of Christ, he said, which was kind of weird for a little kid. And they give you some weird tasting biscuit and wine. And I'm like, what the is this? And I'm like, this is some weird metaphor for, for cannibalism. What the... I remember thinking that this was just crazy as a kid. Even as a metaphor, it's kind of odd. And, and so then one of the interviewers says, I think it's unusual to be even thinking about it as a kid. As a kid, you just go through the motions, and it's later on you think, what does this actually represent? What am I doing? And Mr. Musk replies, well, when I was a kid, I was like, is this actually 
like blood, and I don't want to eat somebody. So I did it anyway, but I thought, this is pretty odd. And I remember thinking that even at age five. Now, that's, that's his comment about reflecting backwards as his experience as a child. Yeah, he's obviously an intelligent man. They just didn't get it. It kind of, part of the thing that hurts about that interview is the sense of, um, yeah, anyway. He, I, I just, I, you kind of wish you could sit down next to the five-year-old child and to kind of explain this out or something. Um, in any case, here's the next framing of the thought, which is you've got how many people sitting through Anglican or Catholic or Baptist church services that just sort of do it, and it's like, what does this mean? If you are a Christian across, you know, like for myself, like you come from, you know, about 16, 18, around that age, and you start taking the Lord's table all the way through, calculate it out, you probably end up doing this about 500 times across your life, which is a lot, um, it's a lot, but it's not like, yeah, it's not like an, a, a huge number of times. I mean, there's, right, it's not like thousands or something. Yeah, how many thousands of meals are you going to eat? And there's a special significance to it then. You have today. And you want to enjoy that in its richness. And so I'd like to take the time to look through a couple of passages with you, and let's process out the framework for what this is and what it means. Would you look with me, first of all, at Exodus 12? Thank you for your work. Let's just kill it. We'll just shut, it, shut the projector off and not worry. But thank you very much. Thank you for working with it. Sorry. Exodus 12 is the Passover. And what I'd like to set out for you as a foundation here is um, the Passover is actually the background for the Lord's Supper, which might surprise you just a little bit, but it is, and that's critical. The Passover as the background for the Lord's Supper sets us out with an understanding that helps us see the whole big picture that's going to lead eventually to what we're talking about this morning. And if you just kind of scan down through the passage you can see that uh, verse one or verse two, the Lord is setting this up as a kind of a, um, he's setting it up as a kind of a, a reminder every year, an annual thing, a holiday kind of thing. He talks about uh, verse three and four, taking a lamb and the specifics of the lamb you ought to take. Verse six, they ought to kill the lambs. Then they take some of the blood, verse seven, and they put it on the doorposts and the lintel, so around the door frame of the house. And then he gives very specific instructions. They eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. They don't eat any of it raw or boiled. And here are specifics. You don't let any of it remain. I mean, it's very specific how you're supposed to do it. You're supposed to eat it like this, dressed with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You eat it with haste. Because I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. I will execute judgments because I am the Lord. The blood will be assigned for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will befall you. 
And I, there's more that we could unpack from the passage. In fact, if you, if you just continue down through, you have verse 21, kind of a repetition of some of this information. And followed by verse 26, there's the expectation that as kind of a repeated holiday, your children will say to you, what do you mean by this? And you will answer, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. You will remember this. You will recall this. We have other passages later in Deuteronomy that unpack this even more. God has set this up so that it's this constant recurring reminder. Okay, that's an interesting thought passing by, isn't it? A recurring, constant reminder if the Passover is linked across to the Lord's table. Just a hint. But there's, there are a lot of elements we could unpack here. I mean, I'll pick on a couple, and then I want to zone in on a core concept. But uh, things to note, food, you're eating, it's a meal. Uh, food is life-giving. All, uh, this, I could, uh, we could unpack, we could go through multiple passages that will, will, will substantiate the concept that all life comes from God, and food is this constant reminder of that. I just thought about this yesterday because I was preparing the sermon, and I'm eating. It's just kind of interesting. Like, as humans, um, we don't really produce any of our own energy, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, a plant can go out and collect sunlight. Even the, it's not producing, it's collecting. But I mean, if you just process that out, it's like all of the energy that we have on planet Earth, if you go far enough back or trace it far enough, it, it's the sun. The sun sending light, plants, and then things eat plants, and things eat the things that ate the plants. But I mean, it's basically all tracing. We can't create any of our own energy. And I was just reminded of that as I was eating yesterday. It's like I'm, I'm putting stuff into my mouth, and <laughs> I literally, because of the modern food system, have no idea where it came from. <laughs> no clue. And this is my life. Like, I stop eating, give me a period of time, and I'm gone. This is my energy. This is my strength. This is my sustenance. And I'm dependent on a whole system. I'm dependent on people. No, more, more basic. I'm dependent on the light of the sun. No, more basic still. I'm dependent on God as the giver of life and energy. And I have a daily, constant reminder of that. You probably already depended on God this morning. You put something in your mouth that you did not create, and it's keeping you going. That's amazing. There's a concept that we could unpack again across even before Exodus, but all the way across Scripture, a notion of food as fellowship. So um, if you think about like Thanksgiving meals or Christmas meals or birthday meals or just like church potluck dinner celebrations of any kind of sort. I mean, it's almost inevitable that food gets involved. And there's this whole notion, and now do put in your mind the imagery of sitting down as a family together around the Thanksgiving meal, and the table is just like, you know, about to sag from all of the meat, all the food that's, that's piled up around it. Everybody's gathered around, you sit down together, it's like, see, maybe I'm making you hungry, I don't know. And, um, and there's this sense of we're together around this event, and eating together is a fellowship kind of concept. There is something unique also, and that relates to what I just said about the Passover. Uh, You have a lot of other feasts and a lot of other sacrifices and things that happen across the Old Testament uh, system. Passover is kind of distinct because it is the, the celebration that is, it's, it's not in the temple. It's not really, there's no mention of like the priest's involvement or the tent or the tabernacle system. It's, it's, it's celebrated as a family. The idea is it's celebrated in the homes. 
And it's tied in with all of this kind of, I mean, the, the, the scenery now is domestic. It's tied in with all of this family stuff of you're painting something across your doorposts. It's not like, not like going to the temple or the tabernacle. You're painting it across your doorposts. You're sitting together around your table with your family, your child asking you, dad, what is this about? It's all of that kind of domestic scenery. And there's something interesting about that pointing to, I guess, the closeness, the relationship. Again, the metaphor of like a Thanksgiving dinner or something. But a core concept with this is that the Passover is an ongoing reminder of something great that God did for his people. Uh, You're right there, Exodus 12, and if you look at verse 26, you know, of all the things that you could answer to the child, when the child says to you, what do you mean by this service, or what is this thing all about? You'll say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. It's this reminder of the great thing that God did in the past, the mighty works of God that have happened. It's, a, it's a, like a celebration reminder, look back and see. See, and if you think now through different holidays, a lot of our holidays are attached to certain historical realities. I look across the room, and I see poppies on different people's lapels. And that's a, that's a reminder. You're, you're, you're trying to express remembrance for sacrifices that were made, for great things that happened, painful things that happened, significant things that happened in the past, right? And the Passover is set up as a link to the mighty work of God in the past, specifically the Exodus. So one of the, the, the frameworks or the flow, the, flow, the, the biblical uh, flow in this goes from the event of God delivering Israel out of slavery, out of the bitterness and the sorrow of that, God brought them out and he gave them life, he gave them hope, he gave them a, a reality, a future as a people. This is tied up with all kinds of other things in the the picture of the Passover. Remember, they have bitter herbs. One of the interpretations here in Exodus 12, why do you have bitter herbs? Because you're supposed to remember the bitterness of your suffering and your slavery in Egypt. And then you're supposed to remember that God brought you out. Why are you sitting there with your shoes on, your belt buckled? Why do you have unleavened bread? Why are you doing it with your staff in your hand and sort of the sense it's kind of, you know, our equivalent now would be like you've got your boots and your gloves and your coat on and your car keys in your hand and your wallet and you're ready, you know, the water bottle, everything's like right there ready to go and the car's turned on and heated up or something. It's like the sense of we're just like right about to leave. Okay, and why do you celebrate it that way? Because the first Passover was celebrated right on the cusp, right on the edge, right at the beginning of God's mighty work of deliverance in the Exodus. You're supposed to remember this every time you do it. There are other components of this story that are just astonishing. Remember that the Passover is done in exchange or as protection for the life of the oldest son. And so as the the angel passes through Egypt, every household that doesn't have the blood across the door, the oldest son dies. It's this reminder, right, and and the the concept of sacrifice as it flows right through the entire Old Testament, this reminder that something has to die in my place. And if that lamb doesn't die in my place, the person dies. It's either me or the lamb. And so I'm going to choose to let the lamb die in my place. The blood over the door. 
How public is this? Um, something I'd like to come back to in a moment, but you know, it's kind of like you walk through the neighborhood and every household has this. It's not like something you can just get away from. Every door has this. And the, the, the kind of the concept of painting it over the door, again, you're not going to get away from it because you, you go into the house, you come into the house, you go into the house, you come out of the house, and you're always seeing the blood there. And you're, you're literally passing under it. The, your entryway in is underneath the blood. And it's just, I mean, it's there. You're just not going to get away from it. The sheer amount of blood poured out this is a little hard to establish, but um, Josephus is a, is a historian of the era. He has a comment, which is disputed, like all these things end up getting disputed, but his estimate is that the number of sacrifices, he says, was 256,500. Okay, other estimates put that way down. Some, the lowest, most conservative estimates could say there would be something like 500,000, half a million pilgrims that enter Jerusalem. And so that would probably imply, if I'm just doing like the lowest, 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 something like 50,000. I don't care. 50,000 sheep. I mean, that's like a logistical problem. You're moving moving 50,000 sheep into a city and slaying 50,000 sheep. And, and the sheer volume of blood that flows then out of the city, not through like nice, tidy, modern sewage system, drainage systems that go into the ground and we forget that it's there. But it, it, it's flowing down through gutters and ditches. It's, it, it, there, there, there are records also to say that when you would come out of the city, the main drainage out of the city was just thick red, like a river of blood. And then how do you dispose of all those, the bodies? I mean, they eat the meat, but you've got bones and you've got the rest, the parts of the animal that are, wow. And all of this raises a really core question. It's like the entire nation comes together at one moment and it's so, it's surrounding you. It's such a visual, stark, grisly way. You can't get away from it. And you do that every year. It raises this really weighty, I mean, crushing question. When do these sacrifices come to an end? Like, how long are we going to keep on doing this? Is, is, this, is this like a perpetual Band-Aid? We slap another Band-Aid on it every, you know, just keep on killing lambs. Just, like, is this going on forever? Is there any kind of end point to this thing? I mean, because I, we, here's one thing we can know for sure. Human sin won't stop. And so I guess the sacrifices won't either. So the Passover leaves us in this place where we're wondering, like, if this actually, does this actually go somewhere? Is there actually a conclusion to any of it? And that's where I want to take you now to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, um, if, if you want some of the best like direct uh, descriptions of what a Passover celebration would look like. There, the, 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 the most extended description of a Passover that we have in Scripture is here. We have a description of somebody celebrating the Passover, how it worked, what it was like, what went on, kind of a step-by-step, blow-by-blow. So Matthew 26, 17 The disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? Verse 18, 
Jesus gave instructions. My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at this place. So verse 19, the disciples did as Jesus had directed and they prepared the Passover. So I just read that, and I'm sorry I rushed you while you were turning, but all I wanted to do is highlight 17, 18, 19. It's three verses, and in three verses, I have three times it says the Passover. And the way that's set up, kind of like in a literary way even, is just a hammer like, Passover, Passover, Passover. Like, you're not going to miss this. This is about the Passover. Now, something that's interesting, I can't go down this direction, but as, as best we could put the pieces together, it seems that Jesus is possibly celebrating the Passover early, earlier than the rest of the people would, which is interesting. But you see this, verse 20, he's reclined at the table with the 12. He talks about the one who dips his hand in the dish, he'll betray me. And he's talking about the betrayal. And I mean, so it's clear, clearly we're mixing together Passover, but also Jesus' imminent death. As they were eating, verse 26, Jesus took bread after blessing. He broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink, all, drink of it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I mean, the, see, see, I mean as, as best we can tell, it's not like we don't have like super, super explicit records, but we have decent records. There were, there were kind of like protocols. There were traditions, just stuff that, you know, humans do it. It just kind of builds up traditions. There were, there were patterns for the way that you normally did the Passover and things that had been done for like hundreds of years. So there were kind of expectations of how it, it would go. And by now, these disciples are adults. So they've already experienced a good number of Passovers. As Jewish men, they've, they've watched this happen since childhood. And so they have expectations of what the Passover is all about. And this Passover is, is I mean, it's a deeply sacred, emotional, even cultural core part of the nation. There's certain things you don't play around with. Certain things you don't make adjustments to, right? I mean, it's like, this is the way it's always done, and it's always, and it kind of feels kind of sacred a little bit. Certain holidays, you're not just going to you know, have, uh, you're not just going to take that and like turn it in a commercialized direction or towards the point you want to make. I mean, there's something about what Jesus did here that, that if he is anything less than who he claimed to be, this is a, a astonishingly presumptuous. Because brothers and sisters, he just took the Passover celebration and made it about himself. He just took this ancient event that dates back to Moses and the Exodus and Egypt, this event that connected to the greatest defining event of the nation, and he said, this event is about me. And he attached the different elements like breaking bread to himself. My body is broken like this. He takes the cup and he says, my blood is poured out like this. Jesus just took this sacred holiday and connected it to the events of his life that are coming within days. That's huge. In fact, it's thicker still. The New Testament proposes, the New Testament argues, asserts that Jesus is the the whole point of the Passover. Jesus fulfills the Passover. Jesus obsoletes the Passover. Do you hear what I just said? (laughs) 
Jesus fulfills the Passover and he even obsoletes the Passover because he takes the events of the Passover and he says, all of that, everything that came before comes down like arrows and it points to my life. And now this whole thing that people have been doing for well over a thousand years, this whole thing is about me. It has reached its conclusion point and I'm it. And the language for that across the New Testament, John 1, 29, John, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Peter 1, 19, We were washed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That language, lamb without blemish or spot, is specifically chosen and put together as an echo of the Passover language. Revelation 5, John saw among the elders a lamb standing as though it had been slain. This is really just powerful language pulling in all of these thematic pieces. But it goes further. John 19, 36, at the crucifixion, Jesus is, is, remember, he's killed with a spear. And the comment, John says, all of this took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. That's directly tied. The Passover is supposed to be done. And you're, I mean, they, they were not supposed to break a bone of the lamb while they're eating it. And you, you kind of would think, like for a good solid 1,400 years or so, people are, are doing this, doing this, doing this. And it's kind of like, I wonder why we do this part. There's not really ever, like, an, there's not an Old Testament explanation for why. God just said, do this. It's like, it's, it, sorry to use a, a slightly nerdy connection. It's like an Easter egg. It's like a hidden little trick built in there. It, it's something that was put, not trick, it's something that was put in there a thousand plus years before, and God just kind of put it there, just kind of dropped it there. And there's no explanation. He just drops it there. And 1,400 years later, you get the explanation. Because Jesus was going to die without having a broken bone. Wow. Or 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul takes this same, I mean, he, he actually puts in multiple elements. Cleanse out the old leaven, he says, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. So he's tying into the unleavened bread thing, which again was something that God had put in with the Passover years before. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You don't get any more specific than that, any more explicit than that. Christ is our, our Passover lamb. Our Passover lamb has already been slain. And from here, then, the connections just explode outward. I, I argued earlier all of the sacrifices upon sacrifices upon sacrifices for a thousand plus years. When will it end? When will it reach its conclusion? Answer, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, and so there are no more sacrifices. The Passover was always kind of like the climactic sacrifice among them all, and Jesus fulfills them all explicitly and directly. Here we have it. He is our Passover lamb. Jesus is the bread of life. So, I mean, you have, this is John 6, and again, it's not me making up links. John 6 does this. Jesus says, you know, you received manna in the wilderness. God fed you. I am the bread of life. And then you're going to get further down with now the Lord's table. And he's going to say, this bread was broken for you. Jesus is the bread. Jesus is the source of life. Remember my argument earlier, every time that you eat that 
That is this reminder that I'm dependent on something else or someone else for life. And even the picture that we're going to celebrate in a few minutes, when you eat, it's an expression of, of your saying, yes, I'm dependent for life on the food I eat all the time, but I am all the more dependent on Jesus for my eternal life. Jesus is the bread of life. And you're taking that as kind of this expression of dependence upon him. I have no other hope other than him. Within this passage in Matthew 26, or it's even more direct in Luke 22, then you have the link to out to the new covenant. So Jesus says, this cup is for you, the new covenant in my blood. Can't get into this, but, but there are promises in, at the end, towards the end of the Old Testament, where God's saying, I will make a new covenant with you, and I will write my law within your hearts. I will give you my spirit. It's sort of this promise of, there, there, it's Promise that are, promises that are linked into the church. It's promises that are linked into what you enjoy. And, and at this Lord's table, Jesus says, and here, I'm telling you now, the new covenant is in. It's arrived. It's here. You know, the Passover always had a mixed tone to it a little bit. It had a bit of a, bit of a mixture, a reminder of suffering that gave way to tremendous joy. Remember the bitter herbs thing. So there's this kind of bitterness to it. You're supposed to remember in the Passover, our time of suffering and sorrow. We were slaves in Egypt, and then the mighty acts of God, God brought us out with a mighty hand, and he set us free. Now we are no longer slaves. Okay, pull that now forward into the Lord's table. And there is that same mixed emotional tone to the Lord's table. There is sorrow in this. There is sorrow in the reminder here that somebody died so that I can live. There's sorrow here in the reminder that it it was either me or him. And my only hope and my only confidence is that it was him, not me. There's sorrow here that gives way to beautiful and rich joy. Jesus has triumphed. As God brought them out of Egypt and set them free from slavery, Jesus crushed the tempter. Jesus conquered sin and death. There's sorrow that gives way to tremendous joy. I'm forgiven. And there's even that concept of fellowship. Remember the the Passover, we sit together around the table like a Thanksgiving dinner. We, We commune together like a family. There's a sense of closeness in it. We share this together. Brothers and sisters, we're going to share this together. We're going to communion. We're going to fellowship together around this table. But there's two, there are two other links that I, I want us to make to give us the full richness of this. And here I'd like us to go to 1 Corinthians 11. Because this is uh, the, the last connection point to say that the Lord's Supper is not just a thing Jesus did. Right? That could be an argument, right? Okay, you had the Passover, and for a lot of different reasons, all, I mean, the reasons I gave you earlier, I, I, can, explic- I can support with explicit links made in the New Testament. The New Testament saying, this fulfilled that. This was because of that, like strong links like that. So the Passover kind of stretching between the, the fact of the Exodus pointing forward to Christ, now Jesus celebrates the final Passover, He's like, this is it. I'm fulfilling, I'm obsoleting the Passover. See, but, but then someone could say like, okay, end of Passover. There we go. No more Passover. Yeah, he didn't just obsolete the Passover. He also instituted its replacement. 
And so the arrow comes forward from Exodus up to the cross, but the arrow continues outward from the cross to the future. And we can support that. We can actually support that back from the Matthew 26 passage when Jesus sets the expectation that you will do this until I come. But how about let's go to 1 Corinthians and let's see it set out in the same way. And Paul, verse 20, this is the passage actually that you usually hear quoted when we celebrate it. He's talking about the Lord's Supper. So verse 20, he uses that language. Verse 23, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. I mean, that's, that's fascinating. This whole thing he's about to talk about is given to him by Jesus. Jesus Institute. It's not like a Paul come up, came up with a clever idea. He set this thing up. I'm just telling you what Jesus told me to say here. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he, is betra- he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And we've got the new covenant language again. Do this as often as... But look, note, note, notice that, as often as... So here's the expectation. You'll do this iteratively. You'll do this repeatedly. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I've had twice now the phrase in verse 24 and now in 25, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And what that means then is that we are going to celebrate this this morning as a remembrance. We will do this in remembrance of him. Remember the Jewish Passover sort of thing? The exodus, the mighty acts of God. God brought the nation out of of Egypt. He set them free. And now there's a remembrance of it. You know, when when your child says to you, Dad, why are we doing this? You say, oh, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. The Lord, every year, the Lord brought us out. And they literally, I mean, that, that became part of the tradition that they would have one of the children ask that and the parents would answer. So as you're growing up, you would constantly hear this. This thing happened, this thing. Oh, okay. Brothers and sisters, here it is. Every month we celebrate it in remembrance of him. And we're remembering the mighty victory of God. If the Jews could remember the mighty victory of the Passover, we remember the mighty victory of the cross. (laughs) And we celebrate our Passover with so many other links. I mean, other things that I'd love to talk about in here. There's the figurative language of the bread breaking. If you, if you actually go, you, you work through the bread that they would have used and Jesus break it, you, you'd hear a, a snap. I mean, think like a really hard cracker or snap. That's his body breaking. Or even the juice being poured out, his, his, I mean, him bleeding out. There's the return here again to the concept of Christ as the bread of life. There's that concept I mentioned of unity around the table. 1 Corinthians 10 actually builds this idea out, and it it talks about that we all partake of the one bread. It kind of feels like the baptism concept. We all entered through baptism. We all take one bread. Paul mentioned, I I looked at earlier, 1 Corinthians 5, the metaphor of unleavened bread, remembering that this ought to be with purity. There's the concept a bit later in the passage here of us examining ourselves, verse 28. And so it is this, it's kind of this built-in framework where you need to go back over and over again and evaluate, Lord, am I really walking faithfully with you? I mean, it's, it's a good, it's a good recurring personal check. But I said I wanted to highlight two elements. Here they are. Number one. 
Think back to the Passover. And the center of the Passover meal was actually a, a piece of lamb. So, I mean, if you break this out, the cup and the bread and the elements, the bitter herbs and all, these were like, these were like condiments or something. These are like the pieces around, but the center of the meal is the lamb. That's like the whole point of it. So if I use my Thanksgiving uh, dinner comparison again, it's like, oh, let's celebrate Thanksgiving again this year. We'll just kind of skip the turkey or won't have a meat. Like, really? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's like the center of it. And the really, one of the really interesting things here is that if, if that's the whole expectation for the Passover, and here's like the core of the Passover feast, the one core part of the Passover feast is missing. There is no meat on this table up here. There's no lamb. We skip that. And Jesus makes some links to that when he says things like, you do this in remembrance of me until I come. Or he speaks of the cup and he says, you won't, I won't drink this again with you until I drink it in the future kingdom of heaven. I mean, part of kind of the, the massive uh, lacuna, the massive missing part in this meal, the, the, the fact that the core center entree is gone here is a testimony. Our lamb is not here. He was already slain and he's already risen and he's there. And that's where my fortunes lie. And so I, I'm, I'm partaking of this feast with a major piece missing because it's already done. The Passover lamb has already been sacrificed. That's over. No more Passover lamb for us. We don't do that part. We skip that part. He's already died and risen again. And that takes me to the, the second and the last concept. I just said Jesus, Jesus made the comment, I will not partake of this, this cup again until I take it with you new in the kingdom of heaven. There's absolutely very much a forward-facing direction towards this celebration. There's a pattern across scripture. Isaiah 25 talks about a day when the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. He'll swallow up death forever. We'll sit with him. We'll fellowship together with him. Matthew 8 talks about a day when people will come from east and west. They'll recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And most climactically, Revelation 19, you've read this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so now if I do my full framework for the kind of concepts we've talked about, I move all the way from God's mighty work in the Exodus to God's mighty work in the cross. And I bridge that through the Passover, but I don't stop there. I now talk about the Lord's table, and it points out to a future feast where we'll sit down (laughs) And this time, it's not just that the lamb is missing from the table, but it's that the slain and resurrected lamb is sitting at the table. And we fellowship with him. And the other pieces start to come together in that. Remember the concept of food as fellowship. We gather together as a family around the table. Now it's the entire people of God sitting down, the marriage supper of the lamb. He's right there. The Passover lamb has been sacrificed. He has risen again. The Lord's Supper is being celebrated. And here it is. We're with him. He is the keynote of this entire feast. There's an old Jewish tradition that came from the exile. And the tradition would go, 
as they would celebrate the Passover each year, they would say, and next year in Jerusalem. It's kind of the hope, right? You know, it's like, okay, maybe next year we'll be brought back and we'll celebrate this next year in Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, maybe next year. Maybe this is your last Lord's Supper on planet Earth. Maybe next time we celebrate this together, we celebrate it in the presence of the King. And we recall all of the mighty works of God from the Exodus to the cross, to your salvation, to your testimony, to this day when you celebrate it together with God's people. Maybe next time in the presence of the king. Now, as we're about then to celebrate this together, may we appreciate the richness of it. But if, if, you, if you can't, I mean, if you don't actually have the relationship to the lamb, you're about to watch an entire congregation of people declare before you their faith that Jesus Christ is their life. You're going to watch an entire room of people together declare to you their confidence that Jesus is the only basis of their forgiveness and their salvation. You're going to watch a bunch of sermons preached. I hope you'll listen, and I hope you'll rejoice, and I hope you'll place your faith in this lamb. This lamb died for you. And you're going to see symbols of his body broken for you. You're going to see symbols of his blood poured out for you. You're going to see symbols of his victory in the very fact that, it, that the meat is not here, that he has died and risen again. And you're going to see symbols and pictures of it in the people around you, testimonies of lives that have been transformed by the power of this lamb, the mighty acts of God in the Exodus, the mighty acts of God in the cross, the mighty acts of God in these people, and what he did for them. And for all of us, even especially for those who are celebrating the Lord's Supper today for the first time, as you take these elements, rejoice in what Jesus Christ has done for you. He's your life. He's your sacrifice. He's your confidence for the future. Every time you celebrate it, the hope and the longing, until he comes, Lord Jesus, I take this as a remembrance of you until you come. And in the light of that, then let's worship. Let's praise the Lamb.